Let's get back into the, this part two of this series on how to be a husband. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to be there in a second. I want to just hit a couple of points of review from last week. And um, one of the things that, one of the reasons we started with the husbands is because the husbands are the leaders of the home based on the biblical instruction. One of the reasons, probably one of the big reasons that many marriages fail is because the husband does not know how to lead biblically or he refuses the responsibility to lead biblically and he just goes into maybe just neutral, just puts life in neutral and doesn't proactively lead. And so it's very important, husbands, if you're here this morning, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, this is, this is your responsibility. There's a lot of responsibility that falls on your shoulders. The good news about that responsibility is God never asks you to do something that he also doesn't provide the resources to accomplish. So just understand that going in. But one of the things we learned last week about being a biblical husband is it involves giving up your pattern of self-protection. See, we're really good at protecting ourselves. If we feel like we're going to have to put ourselves out too much, we generally hold back. We don't want our heads chopped off. And so we're, we're really cautious about putting ourselves out there emotionally, spiritually, and we, we tend to hold back. And what that engenders when you do that as a leader, the one who is res- designed to respond to you begins to do that as well. And all it does is begin to create separation in this marriage that God has called one flesh. And we don't want, obviously, to see that. One of the things we looked at last week, and hopefully you got it last week. If not, you'll get it a couple more times this morning, is this. When, when husbands hear the command in Ephesians 5.25 to love their wives, you shouldn't say, all right, man, give me my boots. Give me my, we're going. Let's do this thing. You should be on your face crying out to the Lord, how could you do this to me, Lord? How, how could you put this type of responsibility on me? And if you don't feel the inadequacy from that command, then you don't understand the import of that command. Let's go back to Ephesians 5.25 and let's look at a couple of things that we looked at last week. Ephesians 5.25, husbands love your wives just as, and let's just stop there. Love your wives. Agapao, it's the Greek word agape, agapao. It's an all give love. It's an all, it's an unconditional love. It's a love that can only be produced by the Spirit of God. Agape is a fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of John or Joe or Bill or Frank or Sam or Susie. Anybody cannot produce this love. And yes, you are walking by means of the Spirit of God. So right there, you know, I don't have the the ability to do it. I can't count to 10 long enough. I can't work hard enough. I can't try hard enough. I can't buy enough flowers to make this love happen. It's got to be spirit produced. If we don't understand that, we're starting off uh, on the wrong bat. The other thing that we got to understand is that agape love is all give. That means this, there's no contingencies. In fact, go back to Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives as long as they cook well. Is that what your version says? Husbands, love your wives as long as they provide all of your needs, as long as they have food on the table when you get home from work, as long as they do this for you, as long as they don't do that to you. Is there any contingency in Ephesians 5.25? Or is it just straight up, husband, love your wives? See, that's grace. That's agape. It has nothing to do with how she's behaving toward you. It has everything to do with if you are rightly related to the Lord. That's what it's about, being a husband. And so if you get to that command and not realize that you're inadequate, you're missing the point. And in case you missed the point, 
Don't just look at the command. Notice the example he gives in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as. So what he's about to say is the same way you're, you're designed to love your wife is the same way something else happened. And this is where it gets impossible, guys, even more so. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. And I hear husbands saying, that's impossible. How am I going to love my wife as Jesus Christ loved the church? And gave, when he gave himself for the church, he did it. He went all the way. He didn't hold anything back. He didn't say, you know what? I'll get to that list tomorrow because I'm really tired and had a bad day at work. My feet hurt. No, no. He went all the way. He went all the way to Golgotha. He paid the full price. He did it all. There was nothing he held back. And husbands are saying, wow, how can I do that? I've got good news for you. The hope that lies within you is Christ in you. He's the hope of glory. The very man who did the very things that we read about in the Bible died for your sins, loved you so much that he went and and bore your penalty for your sins. That man lives in you, husbands. Jesus Christ can love your wives in and through you if you'll learn to walk by means of the Spirit. So the very standard that God gives, he also provides the resources to meet. And that's why when we started last week, we didn't start in Ephesians 5.25. We started in Ephesians 5.18 because that's the key. That's the tool shed full of tools that you have at your disposal as a husband. You can be filled with the Spirit. And the Spirit of God wants to fill you with the life of Jesus Christ because, guys, let's just, let's just net it out. Let's just give it real right here. Your wives need you to love them the way that Christ loved the church. They need that, guys. Your children need you to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Your children need that. Your church needs you, guys, to learn that. Let's, let's buy into this thing. We don't have the strength. Who's tired of failing at being a husband? Raise your hand. I'm just kidding. I will raise my hand for all of us. I'm tired of being a failure. Carrie doesn't deserve that. Carrie, if if I'm rightly related to the Lord, I can love Carrie even when she's got a nail in her head, right? And I'm like, okay, we're not going to touch the nail, but I, I, hey, that sounds hard, right? Great response. Wow, that sounds hard, hon. Good response. And so we'll talk more about that uh, this morning as well. One of the other things, and I said this last week, and I don't mean to be sacrilegious or even just put down a, a mental effort toward these things. But, you know, one of the things that we need to learn as husbands is, is to be a loving husband. You just need to quit trying harder to be a good husband. And you need to start trusting the Lord. And his resources to be a biblical husband. See, we're not, who cares? I, I mean, again, I'm not saying this to be sacrilegious, but who cares about being a good husband? I want to be a spiritual husband. I want to be a husband that's depending on the Spirit of God. Because if I'm doing that, all the goodness aspect of the way I treat my wife is going to be taken care of. Right? I'm not, I don't want to just be a moral rule follower. We talked about that last week. How would, it, how would Carrie feel if she found out I had a checklist every day that I was working off, Right? Tell her you love her at least twice a day, right? Kiss her before you go to bed. Offer to do the dishes. And, and, and I just have this checklist. And she thought, wow, my husband really loves me. Then she sees the checklist. I'm just going through the, the motions. I'm just going through a list. That's not love. It needs to be produced internally by the Spirit of God. And that's what he's going to produce. See, Jesus Christ 
knew how to love the church. Is there any debate on that? Jesus Christ knows exactly how to love the church. He still loves the church. He still works with the church. So it's, it's not that we're looking for a list of do's and don'ts. We're looking to allow that very life to have its way in our life, to begin to love our wives in and through us. And that's what it's all about. So it's not about trying harder. It's not about pulling your boots up. It's not about tightening your belt. It's not, it's not about any of that. It's about rejecting self-reliant human strategies that you can read about on the internet, read in every bookstore and say, you know what? I got all I need in Jesus Christ. That's the message of Colossians. Christ is sufficient. Christ is all you need. Christ is enough for me. And we need to buy into that mindset. Otherwise, we're going to read every book that's ever put out on marriage. And all it does is peddle the same garbage that will cause you to continue to fail. And you have what you need in Jesus Christ already. And we need to start taking advantage of that. That's the whole point. Now, as we work through, we're going to jump back into verse 27. But let's kind of work our way there. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church, gave himself for her. Here's the example. Here's the purpose. One of the purposes, verse 26, we looked at last week, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word. We looked at that word, word last week. It's the, it's the spoken word. It's the Greek word rhema. It's not logos. We're talking about how, do we, how does Jesus Christ um, verbally set us apart the church is in a place of special and high value. And how do you husbands verbally set your wife apart into a special place and high value? And then we jump into verse 27. Second purpose, you'll notice that word that there. He says that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without uh, blame, without blemish. And so he says this second purpose, to present her to himself a glorious church. And the idea is that he wants to place her uh, alongside of him or to stand alongside of her. You see this intentionality here. In fact, those of you that remember the story of Adam and Eve, already you should see the diametrically opposed approach to marriage. Jesus stands alongside of his church. He presents her. He takes the initiative to do this. Adam says, oh, there's a death penalty for that? Yeah, God, she's the one that gave me the, go ahead, deal with her. And he was willing to watch her die. A husband who was designed to be the head of the family was willing to sell his wife out and let her take the penalty. That's what Adam did that day. You know what? Every husband that walks according to the flesh will follow in the footsteps of their ancestor, Adam. They'll do exactly that. Sell their wife out, push her under the bus, grab the keys to the truck themselves, and run over her back and forth a couple times. And we see men do this all the time. They shirk their responsibility of being men and taking on their shoulders the responsibility, not only for their own spiritual growth, but leading their family. In fact, notice how Jesus wants to present this church. It's not just, hey, let me get by. Hey, let me just survive. Hey, let me get through until the kids move out of the home. Hey, let me just get by. It's okay. It's mediocre. It's neutral. No, it's a glorious church. This is an exciting finish to the process. This is, this is a movement toward, toward thriving, not surviving. Notice how he defines it. It's defined as not having spot or wrinkle, any such thing, being holy and blameless, 
we see that Christ standing alongside the church, shielded the church from the punishment she deserved. He stood in her stead. We just celebrated that in communion. Christ in your place as your substitute so you wouldn't have to face the penalty for your sin. Don't we have a great Savior? You think he knows how to love us? Oh, yeah, he knows very well how to love us. And one of the things that we find is interesting, you know, um, Paul being a, a trained Pharisee, in his early life, understood culturally what a Jewish wedding looks like. And this really references, this presentation references the third stage to a Jewish wedding. You know, um, one of the things that I enjoy going about Liberia, going to Liberia is I actually, uh, once occasionally I get to go to a wedding. Their weddings are much different than ours. And I think I may have told this before. They, I mean, they hoop and holler. Everybody's like hooping and hollering. I, I was asking a guy like, when does the wedding start? He's like, oh no, it's in progress. What? Uh, the, the bridesmaids are dancing. They're up here like, you know, the groomsmen are over here. I mean, it, it looks like total mass chaos. Everyone's excited. And he said, well, what are your weddings like? I said, everyone comes in. We're quiet. We're totally quiet. She walks down the aisle. There's some little bit of music. Everyone's totally silent. He's like, that sounds like our funerals. <laughs> and I said, good point, right? This is a day of celebration and we're totally quiet. We're not even... Even celebrating, well, in the Jewish wedding days, they actually had three stages. And in the first stage is the, the man would go to a woman. They would be betrothed. They would be engaged, you might say. In our, but it's much more serious because to break off a betrothal, in those days you had to actually issue a, a, a divorce certificate if you broke that off. But you would be betrothed. Then the man would go home, stage two. He would typically build a place onto his father's home, uh, a residence for he and his bride. And then once he finished, unannounced, he would show up at his bride's door and say, today's the day. Come on back with me. And that's why you see the parables in the gospels, these brides, they need to be ready, right? They need to have their, their oil in their lamps. They need to be ready to go, you know, makeup on their face, hair combing. Don't, don't even go outside of the house not ready because your groom might show up. You're looking for him. He's coming. But then the third stage was the presentation stage. And this is where the, the groom and the bride would consummate their marriage. And then part of that was the inspection of whether or not she had remained chaste. For that wedding day, that was part of the inspection. That was part of the third stage. That's what I believe Paul's referencing here, is that, that inspection stage. And here's one of the things that you notice is this. Who's the initiator and who is the one who's initiating the outcome of her gloriousness and her chaste uh, conduct and her holiness? It, it's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's the one who's initiating it. He's the one who's, who's making sure that this happened. And it speaks to our future glorification. That's a guaranteed deal in God's mind. You will show up that day as part of his church and you will be glorious. And you say, man, I'm not, but I'm not glorious. I, I know. Me either. The grace of God is going to do that, is going to accomplish that. You don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. But it is going to happen to you. It's going to be true of you because Jesus did it all, and he takes care of it. You know, we talked about this earlier. Adam did the opposite. Husbands that walk according to the flesh, they're going to be more interested about how I present to the Lord, not how my wife presents to the Lord. There's a personal responsibility, guys, even in the growth, spiritual growth of your wives. Again, notice Christ takes this responsibility. 
And one of the things that we want to derive out of this is husbands are to stand beside their wives, shielding them, building them up, bearing some of the load incurred from their faults. And I just want to read a couple of things by some really wise men in this area. Charles Ryrie said, this is the special ministry of the husband. This is a special and unique ministry of the husband. The seeking to bring his wife into a mature Christian experience that the one may fully glorify God. Do you, do you husbands realize that as we sit around at times and complain about how unspiritual our wives are, that you are the primary tool that God wants to use in her life to bring her along spiritually? And see, husbands, sometimes we get so distracted. We're, we're focusing on all the ministry out there, all the ministry out there. No, number one, you need to take care of the ministry in here, in this home. That's your primary ministry. She's your primary ministry, learning how to respond to her, learning how to encourage her, learning how to challenge her, learning how to listen. We'll talk more about that as we get to 1 Peter 3. Learning how to live with her in an understanding way. That's on your shoulders, guys. There's a level of responsibility that God is placing on you and you're over here pointing your finger at her. And who do you sound more like when you do that, Adam or Jesus Christ? You sound more like Adam. And we do that naturally. And so we need to guard against that. Warren Wiersbe said this, if a husband is submitted to Christ and filled with the Spirit, his sacrificial love will willingly pay a price that she might be able to serve Christ in the home and glorify him. In fact, we get to verse 28, and we really see a continuation of this thought. Look at the word, so. Verse 28, so, continuing this thought, husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And here's the deal, guys. Do you want a dream wife? Is that what you're, you're looking for? Be a dream husband. You, you want a dream wife? Make it your goal in life to learn what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. And you'll, you'll be surprised how your wife begins to flourish. And you'll be like, wow, she's really changing. She's really growing. Well, Maybe it's because you're growing. Maybe, maybe that's what was not happening <laughs> before. And that's what we're talking about. We're talking about as a husband taking responsibility as the leader in the home to make sure that your relationship vertically is in order before you start criticizing horizontally your wife. And that's what we're talking about here. Now, again, I told you last week, wives, you know, keep your elbows to yourself here. Your husbands need to hear this, but this is their male. We're going to talk about your mail the next couple weeks. But, but understand this, guys. I'm talking directly to you because I'm one of you. I need to hear this too. Okay, we, we all need to be encouraged in this area. And so he says husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. The ought to that he speaks about here is you're indebted, guys. This is what you owe her. And how many times have we said, even in our marriages, I don't know her. I'm not going to do that for her. The way she's treating me, the way she's been acting, the way she does this, the way she doesn't do that, I'm not. I don't owe her anything. I'm not going to do anything for her. Well, the next time you feel that way, go write, go read Ephesians 5.28. You owe it to her. You're indebted to her. You're in Christ. You've got resources that Jesus Christ has given you. You can love this woman even if she's not at present lovable or acting lovable. You still have the resources to do that. You know, and implied in this is that husbands naturally love their bodies in this all-give, unconditional way um, already. 
That's one of the things that we do naturally. Just think about it. How do you love your bodies, guys? Well, what do you do when you're thirsty? You go get a drink, right? What do you do when you're hungry? You go eat something. What do you do when you're tired? You go sleep. You, you, you have a knack. You and I have a knack. We're really good at it. We take care of our own bodies pretty well. It's pretty easy. We're something sore, we go to the doctor. You know? And what he's trying to say is this is what you do naturally. Can you see how that might transfer to your wife? How, how can the way that you already love your own body, can you see how you might transfer that in the way that you love your wife? This is one of the things that he wants to communicate. And again, if husbands have needs, they do everything in their power to meet those needs naturally. The other thing we see in verse 28 is he who loves his wife loves himself. Now, do you realize that if you love and you begin to learn how to love your wife well as you walk by means of the Spirit, that you'll actually benefit from that personally too? And see, doesn't this fly in the face of self-protection that our society teaches us, that you've got to protect yourself. If you truly love yourself, you're going to protect yourself. You're going to let that person do this to you. You're not going to let them get away with that. You're going to, not going to let them get away with criticizing you and doing this and disrespecting you. And you better stand up for yourself. And we get into all these modes of self-protection. That's not what the Word of God teaches. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times to set up boundaries for somebody that's abusive and maybe taking advantage of certain things. I'm not saying that there aren't times for that. I'm saying that in a normal relationship uh, where both people are pursuing the word of God, that that, that this husband needs to understand that as he loves his wife unconditionally, he's going to receive the benefit of that at some point. And this is what I believe he's talking about here. He who loves his wife loves himself. And what we're going to see is that when he loves, when a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the true, the church, that he's going he's to truly love himself and care for himself. And his life and her life are going to begin to flourish. And that's what he's really after as, as a husband. The other thing we see from the verb, it's, it's a present tense, ongoing emphasis. Again, this isn't just waking up and saying, okay, I'm going to love her today and that should last for the next 10 years. It is a daily, moment by moment, caring for your wife, just the way that you care for your body. You don't say, hey, I'm going to eat breakfast this morning and then take off the next 10 years. You don't do that, right? You take care of your body. You know how to do that moment by moment. And so Paul is going to go on to say that if you really believe this biblical doctrine of marriage and what biblical doctrine doctrine are we talking about? We're talking about one flesh, See, so what you do to her, you receive the benefit of. If you're truly one flesh, we got to stop seeing ourselves as we, or, or, or me and she, and start seeing ourselves as we. Once we start doing that, we recognize that the way that we treat our wife, we're going to receive the benefit or the consequence of that. If we treat her poorly, we're going to receive the consequence of that. If we learn how to love her the way that Christ loved the church, we'll receive the benefit of that. And so in verse 29, uh, he goes on. He just keeps expanding on this concept about if you love your wife, you love yourself. When he says this, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. And Paul uses very exclusive language here. No one does this. Nobody hates their own flesh. Now, if somebody does, you might be thinking of a rare exception to this. 
Those are people that we typically take to a, a mental hospital. There's something wrong with them. If they hate their own flesh, if they won't care for themselves, there's usually a mental uh, imbalance going on there. That's not normal. Normal people do not hate their own flesh. You could even be mad at yourself, disappointed in yourself. And you might even say, you know what? I'm going to punish myself and not eat dinner tonight. I don't deserve dinner. I'm so awful. Or I'm going to sleep out here on the rocks. Or I'm going to crawl on the nails. Or whatever you, whatever ascetic way you, you deem to punish yourself. But guaranteed by like day two, you're like, hmm, what's for lunch? You know, <laughs> you're going to take care of yourself. No one hates their own flesh. And so no one has this ill will toward themselves. In fact, Paul says there's two ways that we approach caring for ourselves that are undisputed facts. When, when you as a husband think about this, this is undisputed that you care for yourself in this way. How do we do it? Well, first thing, husbands nourish themselves. It's an interesting word in the Greek. It's compound. And it gives an emphatic emphasis to the fact that we nourish we rear or we feed completely. You know, we're not just eating, you know, rice cakes and a couple of nuts, you know, for our protein. And it, the idea is like, no, no, we're, we're digging into the steak, you know, like we're getting the, the good stuff. We're feeding ourselves. We're nourishing ourselves uh, completely. And you know that husbands do this naturally. And because it's in the present indicative, it indicates what? It's a nonstop ongoing action. Guys, we do this with our bodies. We just continually nourish ourselves. This is a natural way that we approach life. And he's going through all this detail to say, for, for us to begin to think, okay, how do I do that now? How can I apply that type of love to my wife? That's the whole point of why he's going through this. And so the second fact we learn about husbands is that they cherish themselves. And the word cherish means to make warm. It was used to describe how a nursing mother takes care of her children. Also, because it's in the present indicative, it says that we do this continually. We always provide for shelter and provision and safety when it's within our power. We, men, we know how to comfort ourselves. Now, there's not always good ways that men comfort themselves, but in, the point is this, is that when you need comfort, you seek to fulfill that need for comfort, and we do this naturally. But there's something that's really interesting in this passage, and I want to drive your eyes back to the text. Go with me to verse 29 again. See if you can pick up. There's a third indisputable fact here. But see if you can pick up how Paul now moves out of the analogy that he's been working through. All right? Let's read verse 29 again. For one, no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it, nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. Did you pick it up? So there's an, a third indisputable fact, but there's a subtle switch in Paul's analogy. Did you pick it up? Did you see it? Well, guess what? Husbands nourish and cherish themselves just as Jesus Christ does the church. Notice it doesn't say Jesus Christ cherishes and nourishes himself. You see the, you see the point where he's going there? If, if you're thinking carnally, men, if you are walking by means of the flesh, your life will all be about nourishing and cherishing yourself. That's not the way Jesus Christ thinks. That's the exact opposite 
of the way Jesus Christ thinks. And I'm not saying you don't need to eat or you don't need shelter. I'm not saying that. I'm just talking about a thought process. I'm talking about the way that you think. I'm talking about Philippians 2, the way that you lead out in the way that you think. Jesus Christ thinks about others. You as a husband, before you think about yourself, need to think about your wife. That's love. That's agapao, agape love. And you see that switch. It's, so, it's subtle, but I think it's so important. And one of the reasons as we go through the rest of uh, Ephesians 5, and we'll kind of move through this, but verse 30, one of the reasons for this, one of the reasons that Jesus um, nourishes and cherishes the church is because we are members, verse 30 tells us, of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And you know that Jesus Christ understands that the union between him and his church is mutually beneficial. That's why when we get into John 15, it's Christ in you and you in Christ. There's this reciprocal union that if, if Jesus is caring for and nourishing the church and providing the church with sound teaching so that they can learn to walk by faith, learn to re- utilize his resources, they're actually going to bring him more glory. They're actually going to bring him more glory. He understands all of these kind of things. And if the church learns to take advantage of this loving and ultimate care that he provides, they're going to bring more glory to him. He's going to bring more opportunities for them. They're going to enjoy life the way that we were designed to enjoy life. You know, we look for pleasure outside of the realm of fellowship with God all the time. And you're not designed to enjoy life unless you're in fellowship with the Lord. Everything that we have going in life. And those of you that have been around and are old enough to realize that new car smell doesn't last very long in life, Right? The, the Christmas gifts only last so long under the tree, and then they are gone. And if that's what you're looking for in life, you move from the Christmas gifts to the car, to the house, to the new job, to the kids, to the grandkids, to the whatever you put out there, you realize none of those things are ultimately fulfilling. But you know, fellowship with the Lord, Psalms tells us that in his presence is fullness of joy. Can you even look at your life at one moment for five minutes and say, you know what? I think I experienced that. I think I experienced what fullness of joy looks like because I was in fellowship with the Lord. I was enjoying the Lord. I hope you can. I hope you can do it. I hope you can point to multiple times, longer than five minutes, right? Because that's what God wants to provide. And in his presence, there are pleasures forevermore. True satisfaction you know, one of the things that we learn about Jesus Christ, he doesn't get there, this mutual benefit, by demanding that he's glorified. Now, he has the right to demand that he's glorified, and one day he will be glorified as the King of kings and Lord of lords. He's going to get this. But you know what? The church, he doesn't demand it. And I can't tell you how many husbands I've known, uh, myself included, that have sat down with my wife and said, when are you going to submit to me? When are you going to start fulfilling your wifely duties? And like we said last week, husbands need to get out of their mind the emphasis on their rights, their expectations, what they think they're entitled to, and start focusing on the role and duty that God has given you directly. And if, our, and if we can get our minds wrapped around that, we can start really concerning ourselves about what's important. Not that she changes, but that we're rightly related with the Lord. We begin to allow him to change us from the inside out and watch how that impacts and causes our wife to flourish like the flower and the, 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 the gentle 
uh, breeze that she is. See, Jesus loves unconditionally, provides unconditionally, cares unconditionally. And this is why God set up marriage as a one flesh operation. See, you're only going to succeed in marriage by doing what Jesus did. You're only going to succeed by doing what he does. And as I said before, you want a dream wife, be a dream husband. Learn what it means to be filled by the Spirit. Learn what it means to walk independence upon the Lord. Learn how to start taking advantage of the resources you already possess in Christ. It's not about getting more resources. It's about taking the ones you have and start starting to utilize them more consistency. And see, marriage never gets more fulfilling uh, than this. And let me just remind you, husbands, that your wife's carnality never justifies a carnal response from you. You have too many resources to take that cop out and say, well, if she didn't treat me that way, I wouldn't respond that way. You have too many resources in Jesus Christ. There's never an excuse. You can walk by means of the Spirit even if your wife is having a bad day or a bad week or a bad month or a bad year. You can still walk by means of the Spirit. And that's where our occupation needs to be. Now jump over to the right to Colossians 3. Who wants to be married to him? Wow. That'd be tough. So Colossians 3, 19, very similar verse, but what we're going to notice is there's a little distinction. We want to kind of pick this up as we go, but husbands, love your wives. Do not be bitter toward them. And uh, what we see is he uses the same exact word, agapao, for love, and he uses the same exact form. So everything we just said about Ephesians 5.25 applies right here. This is unconditional love. Uh, It's not contingent. On something, It makes sense because Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians about the same time from prison. But what we do pick up is this next command, do not be bitter toward them. And um, whereas everything in Ephesians was kind of a more positive, in, in other words, you should do this, what we have recorded in Colossians is something we shouldn't do. Something that, um, it, you know, it's negative in that sense. And, and let me just tell you, the very fact that he teaches husbands not to do this indicates that husbands have a real easy time sliding into this mode. So, you know, it's, it's funny because if, if husbands were honest with themselves, this can happen really easily. And we'll kind of look and see how that happens. But the word bitter itself means um, to make bitter. That doesn't help us much. Or to embitter. And um, some of the word uses of the word really help us. It, it was used of, of something that was pointed or sharp. So it was used of arrows, Okay. Um, or it was used of something that was penetrating, like a smell, like a really bad smell. Yeah, it's kind of, ooh, you know, you kind of picture all the response that you would have these things. Or something that was painful to the feelings or bitter to the taste. This is how the word uh, was used in Greek. And, and by the way, what typically happens when all these things happen? You tend to, you tend to pull back, okay? You don't, you don't tend to sit on something sharp and go, Wow. That's great. I needed that. Let me just stay right here. You sit on something sharp, boom, you pop up. You get away from it. You smell something bad, you're like, whoa. You know, you're kind of turning away from it. And so all of these, the way this word was used, it, it causes a natural separation. Now, why is that a problem in marriage? Well, one flesh. We're not designed to be separate. In fact, sin uh, causes death every single time, and death is separation, so it kind of fits in with that. But one of the things that we find that's really unique about this command, it's in the passive voice. Very, I think, very important, because this is not something that husbands seek out to do. 
They don't, you don't just wake up and say, you know, my wife's being really difficult. I'm going to start being bitter with her, and I'm going to pursue that with all abandon to be bitter. It doesn't work that way. You, you're bitter because you're allowing yourself to become bitter. There's the, the, this idea is that it's acting on you. You're not actively pursuing it. It's acting on you. And this is what's really sad and ironic about this is because husbands don't actively pursue this. It's not something that you could just say, don't do. And you're like, oh, okay. I know it kind of sneaks up on you. It's always lurking. This, this opportunity to, to be acted upon by bitterness. And so how does, it, how does it happen? Well, husbands many times aren't even aware it's happening. But what ends up happening is, is maybe he feels slighted by his wife. Maybe she did something, said something, didn't do something, didn't say something. And he just feels a little bit slighted. So he just kind of keeps that in the memory bank. And then she does something else. Maybe she does something and he feels unappreciated. Maybe he feels disrespected. Maybe he feels mistreated. And all of these things that are acting upon him that he's holding in his mind now begin to act on him in a way that now he's bitter toward his wife. And I, and I feel sorry, men, for our wives because what ends up happening is we entertain these thoughts and then boom, we're bitter. We don't even realize how we got there, but she's the enemy. She's the problem. And then she receives the brunt of that. And when she, she comes in and she has no idea what's cooking under the surface, and she says, hey, um, when you get a chance, could you put the trash out? By the way, that's a very reasonable request. But that's when you explode on her for asking something very reasonable, then you know something's been cooking under the surface. And you have just violated what Paul is teaching here. And part of the reason is, is when those thoughts start to get coming into our mind, we start to begin to think, you know what? We've got rights. How dare she mistreat me? How dare she disrespect me? How dare she? And we start to swirl that in our thinking. And before long, bitterness acts on us and it begins to control us. And we either implode, which is, happens for a lot of people, or we explode. And then our wives are like, wow, I'll never ask him to take out the trash again. And it had nothing to do with the trash. It had everything to do with the, the way the man who is a leader of the family, who has all the resources in Christ, wouldn't respond to carnal thoughts and began to swirl those in his mind, just like unsaved people do, Ephesians 4 tells us, and didn't take advantage of the resources that we have in Christ to be delivered from sin's power. That's how it happened. And, and the wives just thought, wow, he really doesn't like taking out the trash. Actually, it has nothing to do with taking out the trash. It has to do with this very verse that there's been something feeding this that he's been cycling through his mind. And now this bitterness is acting upon him. And the sad thing about it for, for you guys, as we've talked about this one flesh relationship, when you exude this type of bitterness and it becomes pr- prominent, you're just going to feed your wife's insecurities about your love for her. You're just going to feed her insecurities about your acceptance of her. And you're actually going to hinder her ability to respond to you. And then you're going to start blaming her for that. You see how sick and twisted our sin natures are? We said that at the very beginning of this series. We, we all have a common enemy. And the enemy is, is, this, is the sin nature, indwelling sin. That thing wants to destroy every marriage in this room and every marriage in the world. And this is how sick and twisted 
It is. And how it, and how it happens, it happens subtly. And so, guys, we need to take great uh, care and concern and great, great guard when these types of things happen. Now, flip a little bit further to the right, and let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3. And let's just look at one more verse this morning. 1 Peter 3, 7 says this, Husbands, likewise, dwell with them with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together the grace of life that your prayers may not be hindered. And so I don't know if any of you have ever done this picture up here, a trust, they call it a trust fall, okay? It's kind of, it's kind of fun if you're doing it with the right kind of people. If you're not, you're doing it with a bunch of jokesters. It's not, not really fun. It's hard to trust them, right? So, um, but you know, I, I think this, this image gives us a great picture, at least initially, of what Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Peter is talking about here in this verse. And um, when we think of the word likewise, Okay, verse 7 starts with this word, likewise. It's kind of an indicator that we should probably go back up before that word and see what is he referring to. But what's really interesting when you do that, you go back up to chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Look at verse 1. Wives, likewise. So what that tells us is we don't find the answer to our likewise in the wives section either. We've got to go even further back. To what is Peter referring to? And, and I believe when we look at this passage, one of the things that we're going to see that this likewise refers to is found in chapter 2, verses 21 through 25, kind of the end of chapter 2. And we'll read it here in a second. But the main principle taught here is that following Christ's example of him committing or entrusting judgment of himself to God. Now, I want you to put this in, in perspective as we read this, and I'll kind of make some comments as we go through, but look at verse 21. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. Verse 23, here's the, here's the key, I believe. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten But what did he do? He committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls, husbands likewise. And then he gives the instruction. Now go back to verse 23. You know, when Jesus was on the cross, he was reviled. But you know, one thing that the gospel accounts don't record is Jesus reviling them back. You know, he didn't get into, oh yeah, well your mother, you know, know, your mother jokes back and forth with these guys on the cross. He doesn't revile him back. In fact, he doesn't even respond. That's likewise, guys, that same attitude, right? Because if he's reviling back, what does that illustrate? Self-protection. I'm going to protect myself at all costs. Notice what he also didn't do. He did not threaten. When he suffered, he did not threaten. And you know what? Jesus could have threatened. He had a legitimate threat, right? Hey, guys, when I go in the grave, I'm rising again. There's going to be a judgment day, and, and I'm going to bump you guys up to the front of the line. Like, he could have, he could have threatened back. And he would have a legitimate threat by doing that. He doesn't, he doesn't do that. What does Jesus actively do in a situation where he's being mistreated? 
He's being judged incorrectly by everyone around him. No one's treating him right. No one's giving him the worth that he deserves. As the son of God, what does he do? Look at what he does, verse 23. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. This word literally means he delivered himself over to the power of someone else. In other words, he was not trying to control everything. He removed all levels of self-protection from his thinking and said, if this is God's will, if this is my father's will, I'm going to yield to that will. You see, Jesus, as an example for husbands, said, you know what? I'm going to focus on being rightly related to my father's will. Come whatever may come from anybody else, that's what I'm occupied with. And if the Lord, my father, thinks that I can be reviled, I'm going to take it. And if someone's going to threaten me while I'm on the cross, even though I'm in a lot of pain, I'm going to take it because I'm entrusting myself to him and his care. And that brings us right into marriage. In fact, this is the attitude, husbands, we must bring into marriage. We've got to leave this self-preservation, self-protection out of the equation. That will destroy your marriage. God has got something much bigger for you if we'll simply trust him. And that's our problem. We don't trust him. Because we think if we do that, she's going to walk all over us. If we do that, I'm going to be a miserable guy. If she does that I, and, I, and I do that, then nothing's ever going to get better around here. And I'm telling you this, trust the Lord and rely upon your God. Believe his word, man, and start taking it at face value. Be a child again that when God tells you something, you believe it. Stop being so smart that you become so stupid, right? That's what I have to tell myself all the time. Sometimes you got to be this smart to be that stupid. It would have been a lot better had I been married when I was five years old in a lot of ways because I could just take God at face value, believe his word, trust in the way that he sets things up. And this is what Paul, I keep saying Paul, I mean Peter. This is what Peter says in verse seven. He says, husbands, likewise, in the same way Christ entrusted his care to the father, you do the same thing, but he says, dwell with them with understanding. And so the same way Jesus entrusted his life to the well-being of the Lord, husbands are to reside with their wives, not protecting themselves, but attempting to live with their wives in an understanding way. In fact, the word that Paul uses for understanding here is it's an interesting word. Um, It's the Greek word gnosis. It represents a, a present and fragmentary knowledge. In other words, you don't have the whole picture. He could have used a Greek word called epigenosis, which means full and complete knowledge. But he doesn't use that. He uses gnosis. And so I think that's very telling here because what Peter is is not saying, guys, is that you have to understand everything about your wife. And aren't you saying, whoo, good. But you have to live in an understanding way. You see, there's there's a difference there. He's not putting this this emphasis that you have to um, know everything that she's talking about or know every way that she's feeling, but that you live in a way that's understanding of how she's feeling and what she's experienced. It's rightly been said that this is not an exhortation to understand our wives, but rather to live with them in an understanding way. And so one of the things that 
that we see in a couple of just exhortation to the guys, just to, just to kind of uh, remind ourselves or encourage ourselves. And I'm going to tell you something that's really, really deep here. You might want to get a pen out. And I'm kind of being sarcastic. Do you know that women are different than men? Wow. Let's just end the sermon right there, right? Women are different than men. You know, and here's the thing, guys. We laugh about that because we know that. But how many of us actually embrace those differences? How many of us actually understand because they're different, you are not going to see things the same way all the time? Like, why can't we be okay with that? Why does it turn into World War IX when she doesn't understand things the way that you understand them? Why, why does that become this big ordeal? Why don't we just appreciate the fact that God's created them differently and no going into a conversation that they might actually see it different and that's good for you. You don't get to be a bully and do everything you want to do the way you want to do it. And trust me, that's good for you. That's a good thing for men not to get their way all the time. You know, guys, just because your wife sees something different than you or reacts differently than you do to different circumstantial stimuli, it doesn't make her wrong. And we have this, this natural tendency as men, well, they are not responding the way I'm responding, so thus, they are wrong. We, and, we, and we tend to just assign blame. By the way, it shouldn't even threaten your safety as the leader of the home. Some men are so insecure about their leadership in the home. You know, if you're, if you're a man that's insecure about your wife taking over the home, go back and read through chapter 2 and begin to entrust yourself to the Lord. Begin to, God doesn't want your wife to, to take over the home and take over your place as leadership. He wants you to learn to lead, but you and I need to learn to entrust ourselves to the Lord. That's the, the whole point of this likewise command. And, um, you know, one of the things that, that we do oftentimes as husbands is maybe our wife just asks us to do things a certain way. And, you know, as a husband, sometimes we get real logical or like, well, if I do it that way, it's going to take me five more minutes. Like, I've got a much more efficient way. I, I can do it this way. I, I don't need to listen to her. I can do it my way. But then you realize that for some reason, that way is very important to your wife. And guess what, guys? Just lose the five minutes. Who cares? <laughs> Who cares? It's an opportunity for you to apply this verse. You can live with your wife in an understanding way. I don't understand why this has to happen this way. It's much more efficient to do it this way. But because it's important to her, you know what? I can live in an understanding way with my wife. And you know what? I'm going to lose five minutes of my life. Well, good. You watch one less YouTube video. I feel really sorry for you. You know, I think you'll be able to make it up somewhere else. It'll be okay. Guys, you're to live with an intelligent recognition of the nature of marriage relationship regarding your wife's makeup in wiring. In other words, you, you attempt to adjust to her. You don't demand that she adjusts to you. See, that's that, that's that all give love. It's going outward. It's not, uh, again, looking to what you're entitled to do. And so finally, guys, you know, study your wives. Just, you thought you got out of school at some point. You are not out of school. You got one subject if you're out of school, and that's your wife. Rest of your life, she's your subject. Get your textbook open. Start getting ready for pop quizzes. Wives are good at giving pop quizzes. You, you think you're ready for this. You're not. You, you think, and it's good. You're inadequate. 
We need the Spirit of God to live in and through us. We need to be walking by means of Spirit. Guys, study your wives. Understand who your wives are. It requires active listening. Know her personality. Understand her temperament. Understand her emotions. Understand that when these circumstances happen, they tend to stress her out or make her anxious. How can you come alongside of her in such a way and encourage her to begin to trust the Lord? How can we do that? That's what we need to do. You know, and I like what Tom Constable wrote. I, I, just, I just love the way he writes this. Very practical. You're looking for something practical this morning. This is, this is great. It sounds so simple. It sounds like when I was playing baseball and I would ask my coach, how, I want to learn how to run faster. How can I run? And he's like, all right, you ready for this? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, run a lot. Just run more and they'll make you faster. And I was like, I don't like that answer. I'm going to go, I'm going to go somewhere else where I don't have to run. I don't want to have to run to run faster. So it's going to be very practical. You may think it's overly simplistic, but I think we need to hear it. Tom Constable wrote this. One of a husband's primary responsibilities in a marriage is caring for his wife. Caring requires understanding. In the home, if you are married, what are your wife's greatest needs? Do you know what that is today, guys? Here's a great advice. Ask her. And this is kind of the whole point of this quote. What are her greatest concerns? Ask her. What are her hopes and dreams? Ask her. What new vistas would she like to explore? Ask her. And keep on asking her over the years. Keep actively being engaged. Keep dating your wife. Those, those questions were easy when you were 19 and 20 and 25 or whenever you got married and were dating. Those were easy questions. Keep asking those questions. That's what she needs. That's how you live with your wife in an understanding way. Now, let me just end there. There's a, a, this is one of those verses. There's some meat I left on the bone. I get it. So we're just going to have to end there. But let me just do this. For all the men in the room, can, I, can, we, just, can we just pray together as guys? We'll let the ladies listen in. Um, but let's close there. I want you guys and myself to be the kind of biblical or spiritual leaders of our home that our wives can then respond to. And I'm just going to say it again, guys, they need you to learn this. They, they need us to learn this. They need us to understand what it means to walk by means of the Spirit. They, they, are, they are being held back in many ways in the way that they can flourish as women of God because of our own inadequacy in leading them in a spiritual way. And so, man, we got to get this together. Right? We've, we've got to take this serious and just be very cognizant. And there may be certain areas that you're doing well in. And I applaud you. I'm, like, I want to be, I'm your biggest cheerleader up here. I want to see it done because when I see it done, then I have it modeled for me. And I learn better how to do it for my own wife. Right? This is what we want, though. We've got, to, we've got to passionately be ready to pursue this and respond to the Lord. And whatever he is showing you through his word, please just take a simple action as you leave here. Trust the Lord. Begin to believe his word. Begin to say, Lord, I want that to be true in my life. Let me pray for us. Lord, I do thank you for your word and your resources. Lord, this, this room is filled with married men, Lord. And, and we just humbly confess that we, we have not always been the husbands that our wives need us to be. And, and Lord, we, we don't say that to... Uh, to make people think that we're so humble or to pat ourselves on the back and about how humble we are. Lord, we, we say it because it, it, it should break us. It should, it should cause brokenness in each one of us to know that in some way we've, we've harmed our wives, we've limited 
their ability to walk with you, or we've gotten in, at least created an obstacle for that. Lord, and it's our heart's desire to be the type of men that, that would lead in a way that would bring you honor and glory, that would overlook our, wall, our wives' faults, that we would lose the expectations that we have of our wife and that we put on our wives, and that we would be able to learn to love with, with a love that is, that is all give, that's unconditional, that's full of grace and truth. And Lord, that's our heart's desire. Would you do that work in the men of this church? Would you just begin to do that work, whether that's uh, slowly or just in, a, in a, just a crazy wild turn? However you want to do it, Lord, that's fine. But we just beg of you, Lord, to convince us of this truth. And we just beg of you that the men in this room would, would begin to respond to it in whatever area that they can. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.